Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello, and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got my very, very first guest from Zambia. And we're going to talk about sustainability, a very, very hot topic. We said at the beginning of the year in Grow CFO's predictions that ESG was going to be a big topic in 2023. And for reasons of high inflation, slowdown of the economy, big interest rates, it's tended to go a little bit cold. So I'd like to start today talking to Prudence Mushinota about sustainability, ESG, and all things like that. So Prudence, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm really honored to, as you've mentioned, become the first guest from Zambia, and I look forward to our conversation. So tell me a little bit more about you. We haven't had a Zambian guest before. Tell us about your journey that got you to be a CFO. Well, my journey becomes scary now as I'm approaching 40, and I'm trying to figure out if I've made much impact. And what is my next step? But I am first born in a family of two girls. And interesting, I am a Zimbabwean national. So my journey begins from Zimbabwe, where I got my bachelor's degree at a local university in Zimbabwe, which is Solusi University. From then onwards, I moved to Grand Thornton. Then it was called Camille Chartered Accountants. And then it joined the Grand Thornton firm, and I trained for my articles there. I was there for about three to four years. After I completed my articles, I then moved on into the industry, which was the private enterprise. I joined an institution called TN Holdings, and I joined this institution as an internal auditor. TN Holdings, I would accredit to much of my experience. I had just obtained external audit experience in various industries, now, TN Holdings had manufacturing sector, production, FMCG, banking, financial services, medical. It was everything. While least I was there, I then realized that audit was not enough for me. I needed to transition to the finance profession. And we- because so, so far, you're describing my early career path as well. Replace Grant Thornton for Binder Hamlin. In fact, in Newcastle, where I qualified, probably the most alike firm to us, the biggest competitor was probably Grant Thornton. And I moved on from Binder Hamlin into internal audit in the chemical industry into ICI and spent two years doing that. And like you, I decided audit wasn't for me. I wanted to move on. So tell me how the move on took place. Exactly. So at that time, TN's financial services section was bringing on board a new banking system. And I was tasked to be part of the project team, which was a 10-member team, overseeing the implementation of this system. What was interesting was we had a goal to bring on board this system and implement it within six months. And this was T24, Terminus Banking Application. And the guys were telling us it's impossible. 
We've yeah. never done that. It cannot be done within six months. But the CEO told us it was going to happen. So I was part of the team. So when you're internal audit, you're basically in charge of internal controls and ensuring that the system actually achieves what it should. And while I was there, there was a transition. That same financial services bank was being purchased by Econet Wireless. Econet Wireless is one of the largest MNOs in Zimbabwe, listed on also JSE and also listed on London Stock Exchange. And I guess I could say that I was one of the few privileged members of the team that then transitioned to Econet Wireless. And during my transition, I had an appreciation of how the system worked. So I didn't have to apply for the position in finance. It was offered to me. And I took it gracefully to become the financial reporting accountant. And that was my move from TN Holdings to Econet Wireless under the bank and as the financial reporting accountant. That's how I transitioned to being in finance. It exposed me to so much, not just the banking services, because Econet Wireless as a group had the Mobile Tech had just purchased a number of subsidiaries. I got into much of the reporting aspect. I got into systems. And also what then led me to this position as CFO was the mobile network platforms. Econet just onboarded what they call EcoCash now, which was a mobile network platform with its agenda to spread and bring on board the rural communities and the mass market to be bankable. So this was supposed to be a very cost-effective method. And learning much from M-Pesa, which is Kenya, we had to bring on board individuals from there so that we could take lessons from them. I was in Econet Wireless up until 2015. At that time, I received a call from an agent in South Africa who was telling me that there was a position in Zambia and they were looking for a CFO who had mobile network operations experience. Interestingly, I was the only one in Zimbabwe at that time that had gotten this experience as an accountant. Brilliant. It's amazing how things conspire to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So that'd be a big move, though, because it's a change of role. It's not just a change of role. It's a step up from being financial reporting to CFO and not just changing location, you're changing country. Lots and lots of big challenges there. So how did you cope with all of those big challenges? Well, first of all, I had to consult with my parents if I could leave the country (laughs) because I was still living under my parents' home. I was pretty young because at that time I was 30, 31, 32 years old. Yes, which is very young to get CFO role. Actually, no, I was 29. Yeah, I was young to get a CFO role. (laughs) So it was scary, exciting. But if you look at the structure of MNOs and listed companies, you have these air conditioned offices, you have all these luxuries, that was the first thing that came into my mind because my ambition to do articles and train to be a chartered accountant were with the hopes that I'm going to make money and I'm going to be in comfortable office and I have 
all these comforts that you can attain when you are a CA. But I always knew, even within Econet, when I participated in this mobile network operations exercise, it gave some sense of purpose. You were looking at the underprivileged, you were looking at the unbanked communities, which constitutes much of the underprivileged. And and I think already it was a no-brainer for me when I took up the interviews. I knew that this is exactly what I wanted to do. And this resonates to all the activities that I took up when I was in college, when I was in high school, where you participate in various activities to save the community, to advocate for equal opportunities to everybody. So whilst I had this accounting profession that I decided to focus on, I think everything that was presented to me with this position did resonate to everything that I had initiated for myself and what I knew I wanted to become. And I had to go through the websites, try to understand what the company did. But what was most exciting was I was not getting into a nonprofit institution. I was going to be joining a social enterprise, which still gave me a challenge to be part of a sustainable organization, or at least contribute to its reaching sustainability, still working with the communities and many other exciting initiatives that would come of the organization. Another comforting aspect is Zimbabwe and Zambia are 45 minutes away with a flight. So being young as I was, I actually used to travel back home every Friday and then come back to Zambia on Mondays. So it was a comfortable, I didn't have to think much about, am I moving to Europe? Am I moving to the US? It was within the region and I knew I wasn't transitioning much because I still would get family comfort, but allow me to grow. And most importantly, being offered a CFO position at a young age, I think it's everybody's dream. Indeed, indeed. So that's that company, Community Markets for Conservation. That sounds as though it's very much focused into the space of all of the things that we talk about with ESG. Indeed. Community Markets for Conservation, as its name spells out, and interestingly, operating a retail brand called It's Wild, just summarizes what goes on in the organization. We always say when tough times come, it is wild because it's not easy. The model itself is not easy. It's born and its vision created upon the protection of biodiversity, protection of wildlife. That's what's most important and what the founder is passionate about. And this is Dale Lewis. And through that, even when he speaks of his story, he mentioned that when he came to Africa, he's American, he realized that so many models often spoke about protecting wildlife, protecting biodiversity, but that meant displacing the communities that live around these areas. While at least you're trying to encourage humans to cohabit with wildlife, with the environment, you are still displacing them. And what happens? The people that you're displacing are people in the rural areas. So what was to happen was to create alternative sources of income, alternative livelihoods that still existed and were natural and which these communities could relate to. And we know Africa is blessed with so much land. 
It's got a good climate. I missed all these climate change narratives that we're experiencing now. I can tell you today has been very hot, but we still know that of all the continents, we are still much more privileged with a better environment. So agriculture is our source of livelihoods. And what was to happen now is how do you encourage these communities to adopt practices that are aligned to the communities they live in so that they stop poaching, they stop cutting down trees, and they also appreciate the reasons why they are being discouraged from doing practicing poaching and cutting down of trees. This sounds very much wider than you simply operating as a CFO for a company dealing with mobile networks. It is. So it took me years to actually get there because the mobile network solutions that attracted me to this job or that resulted in me being positioned to this job, the purpose was to facilitate for payment of commodities. So within our model, the value addition does take place from purchasing of commodities to the production and getting the product on the shelf. And one of the key challenges that did exist was how do we pay these smallholder farmers? And much of their payments did okay through cash, which poses its own risks and challenges. We had many of our cashiers being attacked or you get reports that funds are missing. So the important aspect was how do we come up with solutions to pay these farmers, but not only just bringing advantages to the company. Paying these farmers through a traceable system would also create the ability to be bankable, the ability to access credit from various channels and just create a profile for them, which didn't exist. And five years into the company, I still had not managed to implement this because the challenge was beyond what we anticipated. You try to register these farmers, you realize many of them do not even have an identification card. So you cannot register them on a mobile network platform. Many of them, especially the women, are riding on their husband's or their family's registration. And yet you are buying from the woman that has done her farming, that has harvested. And also all these challenges are what we have been trying to address and it has taken so long. But as a CFO, I think the benefits that came into it is you just can't come and say, this is the system that we want and this is how it's going to work. It meant I had to be on the ground. I had to speak and engage with these communities and then speak and engage with the different financial services to try and come up with training programs, awareness programs, and systems that actually were ideal. You are now departing sort of from the norm, the usual of the shelf system and designing it to suit the environment and the people that you're working with. Big, big challenge. Wow. And I must admit that I thought straight away, mobile network, well, yes, you've got a very rural country, small population scattered over a big geography, which is challenge number one. Do you need, if you're going to pay these people, or you need some network that can cover and give folk access? Okay. I'd 
What had never occurred to me, though, is the problem of registering the people themselves, which is peculiar, I guess, to your part of the world. It is. And I guess that's why you get to listen to much of this women advocacy and youth empowerment that is taking place. But often, if you are not on the ground, if you are not in these spaces, you will never relate, as you've indicated, that the challenges would speak of are network connectivity, where to withdraw the money from, and the infrastructure to get there. But while at least you have done all that, and then you call for, okay, farmer A, this is how much you have harvested. I need to pay you. Register. Then you realize this person maybe only attained grade seven or grade nine, but even then, they never got to have an identification card. And then yeah. you stop there. You just end there. And these are the challenges that we are facing every day when you talk about empowering the girl child and empowering the youth. Do these individuals even have an identity of their own? And that's when you realize that the problems that we speak of when we're talking about ESU and talking about sustainability, we are just looking at problems at the surface. We have deeper problems if we are to actually attain sustainability, if we are to actually attain development for all. When you're looking at the social aspects, we have deeper problems in many other spheres. And these are the same areas that we talk about that are mostly affected by climate change. These are the areas that we talk about that are mostly affected by underdevelopment. And this is how deep it goes. Wow. Now, this sounds like something that you're really passionate about. I believe that I am where I am. We spoke about how this position came up to me. And now it would be very funny if people heard that this is how I got this position. But I believe that there is fate, there is privilege, there is opportunity. And I do not take that for granted. But I also believe that I got here and I got these opportunities awarded to me because they did exist. And that has ignited some passion within me to make sure that at least opportunities are extended to all of us. It's better for one not to succeed in life or attain something on their own, not because opportunity was not extended to them, and especially for the girl child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you won an award last year. On your LinkedIn profile, it says ACCA Africa 2022 CFO ESG Award winner. Now, tell me something about that. I actually cried on the day they announced my name. <laughs> so I'm part of the ACCA profession. I'm a fellow of ACCA. And that's how I became a Chartered Certified Accountant in the first place. The 2022, and I also believe that maybe COVID and everything challenged ACCA to introduce these CFO Africa of the Year awards. I didn't even know they were happening. It's one of those things where during COVID, like you can imagine what we were all going through. And as a CFO, you're trying to balance out all the dynamics that are happening. I rarely got to read of the articles that were being published. The next thing, I received an email being told that you've been nominated for an award and we would like to interview you through this process. That was the first email. And I was wondering, there's an award? 
what's all this called? Usually in the finance space, you really get to hear of us being awarded anything. These things Absolutely. happen in marketing and then yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all those marketing sales types that get awards. Exactly. Who nominated you? I actually don't know because when they engaged me, they assumed I knew who had nominated me. But I always have suspicion that some of my colleagues that I've worked with could have nominated me. But that was like just the beginning of the process. So after the nominations, I'm told they did their own assessments and they arrived to a certain number, and then they start performing their due diligence. So they started asking me about what I had done in the environmental, the ESG space and sustainability. I had to deliver whatever articles I had written. And at that time, I think the most catching involvement was my participation at COP26, where I got to participate at COP26 after having submitted a letter to UNFCC where they were asked, they'd asked that, what is it that you'd like to tell the current presidents? So I did write a letter just elaborating how I felt, what I felt that the presidents needed to do. And through that, I then got to, I mean, my letter was selected to be one of the letters to be presented to the head of states. I submitted all this documentation, and then the next thing I was being told, you need to go through interviews. So we went through, I think, two, three different interviews, and I guess that was the selection process and elimination process. And then after that, we awaited for the day when they were going to announce the winner. And I was up against, I know that the finalist, I was up against two amazing candidates, one of the candidates whom I look up to even up to date. I stalk her on LinkedIn. I write to her to just seek advice. She's from Nigeria and her name is Deborah and she's doing so many amazing things. She was an author. So I believe that whatever I did then has really made some significant change in my life and possibly many of the people I engage with because the people I was against I see that they're doing so much around the ESG space and they're also in finance, which is amazing. Yeah, just shows that finance can have a big influence in this space. It's a space we should be owning. But tell me a little bit more about that letter. What was in it? When one of the things I mentioned in that letter was just asking the heads of states if they really actually do engage with people on the ground. And if they were not opening their eyes to the climate issues that we're facing, the economic challenges that we're facing, I was also talking about heads of states not just waiting for their ministries to update them, not just making visits to these areas and come up with a story, but actually get to speak and engage and understand what many were going through. So it was more of just asking them how their day-to-day life goes through and how they engage beyond them getting updates from their advisors and their ministries. And then that's all I said. And I tried to elaborate that as a girl from Africa and having lived in Zambia and Zimbabwe, this is what I have experienced. And this is what I would like you to understand because I'm also coming from well-conditioned office. I am a girl that I believe has a very decent life. But at the same time, 
I'm cognizant of what many other girls are going through and what they didn't get to achieve because of the challenges that we are facing. And much of it was about the economy and the climate change. You mentioned the expression girl child on several occasions. Now, that person, how difficult to work out how to put this, how unequal are opportunities for women in Zimbabwe and Zambia? How disadvantaged are you? I think it's still to a greater extent because I believe it's even being worsened by the economic conditions. So there was a phase way back where such things as going to school and depending on the income capacity of a family, especially in the rural setup, school fees was paid for the boy child. The girl child was would only attain education up to a certain level. And then after that, they are married off. And even their lobola, which is the bride price, goes to even support the boy child. We sort of transitioned to that and we saw families trying to practice equal opportunities. But still, when the economy does, economic challenges do they are faced with, you find that those options do exist. But this is coming from the rural setup. You then come into the professional circles. I'm still the only female executive in my organization. And even still, when we are looking at the issues that we are facing now, you'll find that the positions that we hold as a finance person, I'm saying I need to appreciate what is happening in the field. I have to bulldoze my way because what they see is you should be in the office. That's where you belong. When you get into the field, it's either the conversations or the ideas you're bringing are not what we want to achieve because much of the contributions that we bring have a feminine aspect to it and which are what actually builds the success of our strategies. But at that moment, you find they prefer a certain conversation. They prefer a certain talk. So I also know that my voice is much preferred when we are trying to attract funding because they know that I will push, I will be aggressive, but with some level of calmness. And they appreciate that, but they only appreciate it because I'm a woman. And because that's what they see, they don't regard me to be appropriate anywhere else. I'm working in an agricultural space. I'm working in a space where we have to travel to the most difficult to reach areas. I still have to bulldoze my way. Because one, they feel that these are areas where the men should go to, either because the terrains, the road terrains are not good. So we are still far from it. And then when you look at the youth nowadays, with regards to employability, you find that an institution, an organization would rather employ the boy child who's just graduated because they're looking at, okay, this girl will graduate. They will probably get married soon. They want to take time off when they are expecting a child and they are pregnant. All those factors, they may not be said out because labor laws expect them to be accommodative of such. But internally, those conversations do happen and the girl child is discriminated. And so when we come out and say, how far have we gone into presenting opportunities for both the girls and the boys. And I know there's a debate where people feel that the boys are being left out. But I've said, 
those conversations are happening in the towns, in the CBDs. When you still go beyond that, we are still noticing the discrimination around the females. And this mainly, yes, economic-wise, it's just the way it is now, and the economy is not actually helping to resolve this situation. So I still believe we are way, way far. And if I can feel discriminated in the position that I am, I can only imagine what is happening to those that are still underprivileged. There's a big, big challenge still to sort out there. So, Prudence, take yourself forward, maybe five years. What's Prudence going to be doing in five years' time? At this present moment, I am going through all this pressure of I need to be out of this space that I am now. So my five-year journey, I believe, should have started already. I see myself in the decision-making. I think I've said this in a previous podcast, the decision-making position. And for the reasons that we've mentioned before, that being a female and also being a CFO, I've seen much development and listening to many podcasts. I've seen much development in the CFO role, I think, in the developed countries in Europe, in the US. But I've seen that much still in Africa. And if you're not part of a global institution, there's still limitation of what you can do as a CFO. And I believe that I have reached the maximum I can offer as a CFO within my organization. I want to position myself in areas where I can make decisions as to how finance capital is allocated and how it is spent. And I'm not so sure if that role will come as still a finance lead or head of an institution or in a different setup, but that is my goal. I am currently on the receiving end of capital with its conditions and how it should be spent. And I see so much of a gap around that having appreciated the real challenges that we should be allocating capital to. So I see myself transitioning to a position where I am making a decision on finance fund allocation. Fantastic. And whether that's a CFO role or not, all of that finance background will be of huge, huge benefit. It certainly will be. I think finance just gives you an understanding of, I mean, we're seen as people that always focus on costs and expenditure and trying to be stringent about a lot of things. But I believe that internal controls experience ignites some level of responsibility and accountability in you. And that's what we need if we are to attain sustainability. We just need to have that kind of discipline and that kind of eye that looks out for what is right and what is wrong. But when you come back to the numbers themselves and the allocation, I think we're already good at that. We now just need to develop on our ability to discern in how we can use that money. We're saying, okay, let's be conservative, but we're being conservative towards what? And I think that's the kind of wisdom that the finance profession gives you, and you can't take that away. Now you just need to marry that with the operations on the ground. And yeah, that's all we need. And simple when you say it like that. It's a big, big challenge. Oh, it is a big challenge because... I mean, I have the opportunity to actually currently do that. I mean, we work with donors. They require some great of level of accountability. 
we are seen as an organizer. Being a social enterprise, sustainability is key number one on everything that you do. So it's definitely not that simple. And that's why I feel that I need to step away just from the reporting aspect. Yes, I do provide much of advisory. Yes, I do relate. But at the end of the day, I think I would be adding much more value if I'm getting my hands right in the neck of the challenge. Yeah, which is much, much more of the CFO role that takes place in Europe, USA, rather than the restricted one that you're talking about. Indeed. Often when you try to do that here, you are labelled as overstepping. I think I get that every week. Yeah. I get that yeah, every week. There's nothing wrong with overstepping. There's nothing wrong with pushing the boundaries. Nothing wrong with going out of your comfort zone. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. Brilliant. Prudence, it has been lovely talking to, to you today. Thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you so much, Kevin.